So, so far in our discussions, we've uh, been looking at how biblical narratives operate, what their characteristics are. And in our last session, we looked at how biblical characters are presented and how we can get beneath their skin and understand how they're operating and how we might uh, consider um, reflecting on biblical characters in understanding and preaching the sermon. And as we come to the uh, second half now, the third and fourth presentations, we'll be moving towards <clears throat> uh, more directly considering how we apply this in, in preaching. That's what our final session will be largely concerned with. But before we get there, what I want to do in this third session is to look at the plot of biblical narratives. And the plot of narratives um, is of great help to us when we're coming to understand these narratives in preparation for preaching them. Because among other things, what a plot does, it enables us to judge the relative importance of various parts of the story. So we have a narrative in front of us, and we might be interested, we would be interested in knowing, what parts of this narrative are more significant than others. Now, of course, all parts of a narrative have some significance, but there are some parts which are of greater significance than others. And one of the problems of preaching on a narrative is where, as you know, you have a particular burden on your heart. Um, it, might be, uh, it might be baptism. It might be anything, 101 different things. And we read a narrative, and there, there in that narrative is a detail that confirms every one of our prejudices. This is the passage the saints will hear this week. And whether that detail is what the narrative is about or not makes no difference. I have a burden on my soul. There is a detail in this narrative, and I'm going to use this as a heaven-sent opportunity. Um, now, and we expand on that, you know, and illustrate it. But then we're on reflection, we have to ask, is that what the narrative was about? Is that what the, where the emphasis was, or was it a stray detail? Let me illustrate that from a well-known passage from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 14, uh, verses 6 to 12. I heard this um, illustrated by uh, N.T. Wright, that uh, some of you may have heard of, a prominent New Testament scholar. So... When Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So, she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So, says, right, here the pastor reads this as his scripture reading, says, this is my reading for today and my the topic of my sermon this week is the dangers 
of dancing. Now, yes, there, there, there is dancing in there, and, and perhaps you are aware of the dangers of so doing, but could you look yourself in the eye on Monday, in, in the mirror on Monday morning and say, this is the major point of this passage. So understanding the plot helps us to assess the relative significance of details in a narrative. So we need to know how narratives work in regard to their plot structure. So first of all, what is the plot of a narrative? In its simplest terms, we can say that the plot is the major organizing principle of a narrative. And here we're talking about any kind of narrative, biblical narrative or otherwise. How is a narrative structured? That's the essential question when it comes to mapping the plot of a narrative. Uh, so from this uh, quotation you see here from a standard work on literature, it says that plot is, first of all, a constant of all written and oral narrative in that a narrative without at least a minimal plot would be incomprehensible. So without a plot, you don't have a narrative. So it's essential then to establish what the plot is so that you can see how it has been put together and how the narrator has indicated to us the relative significance of that. Um, so we'll be going to looking at this, and by the time we've finished, and particularly as we go into our next session, I think we'll see the significance of understanding plot for preachers. Now, the way in which plots have been conceived uh, has differed between you know, different authors. So there is essential agreement on what a plot is, basically, but sometimes different... Um, terminology will be used. What I'm going to be using today is uh, a classic plot structure, the classic plot development. Uh, and in this, uh, we'll see that any narrative has a basic plot structure of five steps. Five steps in a classic plot structure. We'll illustrate it by looking at a very short narrative, which will show clearly these five steps, and then we can apply that to other narratives. So if we look at Matthew 8, verses 14 to 15, very short narrative, only two verses. The first step in a plot structure, five-fold plot structure, sometimes called a quinary structure, quinary meaning five elements, we begin with an initial situation. The initial situation is information concerning the characters, their situation, and so on. And the initial situation requires development or destabilization or something to happen to it for the plot to progress. So here we are in Matthew 8, 14, and the first part of verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house. There's the initial situation. So we know where we are, we're with Jesus as he's entering Peter's house, but something needs to happen for this 
to become a narrative. So that brings us to the second step, which is the complication. And the complication moves the narrative away from the initial situation. It introduces something into the narrative. That can be uh, some tension or an element that indicates that matters cannot remain at rest. So you can think of the complication as uh, the trigger point, that which launches this narrative forward. And in uh, Matthew 8, verse 14b, he saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying in bed with a fever. That complicates matters. There needs to be a response to this complication. The third step, given various names, but uh, here we'll call it the transforming action. And the transforming action is the means of managing or responding to the complication. We have a complication. There's, a, there's an issue here which has changed matters. How do we respond to that? And in Matthew 8, Christ's response, brief, is he touched her hand. So he sees that she has a fever. He touched her hand. This is a means of making a bridge between the issue, the problem, and a solution. The fourth step is the resolution. And the resolution concludes the move started by the transforming action. At least partially, it resolves the issues introduced by the complication. So remember the complication, the trigger point, which moves things forward. The resolution is that part of the narrative which resolves that issue, that complication. In Matthew 8, it is, and the fever left her, and she got up. There's the resolution. And the fifth final stage, the final situation. The final situation brings the narrative to a resting place, and it returns to the initial situation, or it moves on to a new stage of equilibrium. So in verse, end of verse 15, the final, state, uh, the final situation in this narrative, and she began to serve him. Let's just look at the, a summary of those five steps then in this very short narrative. The, the initial situation is when Jesus entered Peter's house. The complication is that uh, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. The transforming action is that he touched her hand. The resolution is, and the fever left her, and she got up. And the final situation and began to serve him. Now, here, you notice, I just want to point out something, the, the relationship between the complication and the resolution. The complication is that this woman is in bed with a fever, and the resolution is that this woman gets out of bed and the fever has left her. The resolution is the reversal of the complication. And generally speaking, I say generally speaking, when we're looking at a narrative, if you want to know what the heart of the matter is, you will generally find that in the resolution. What is this narrative mostly about? What is the primary aim? 
you'll find it in the resolution. That doesn't mean that the other elements are of no significance, but it means that they are of secondary significance. So the relationship between complication and resolution is, is fairly critical. So in this particular narrative, the resolution is obviously significant because it solves the problem. The woman is in bed with a fever, and the resolution is she gets out of bed without a fever, so that obviously shows us the significant point. But the final situation is also significant when you read it in context, that this woman then began to serve Jesus. And the reason why that's significant is that in the time of Jesus, women, generally speaking, were not allowed to serve rabbis. So the fact that this woman serves the rabbi, Jesus allows her to serve him, is an indication that this rabbi has a different agenda from most other rabbis. So that's the, um, the heart of what the plot of a narrative is. So if you, you know, you may forget uh, what a plot structure is, simply remembering that very short narrative of Christ healing Peter's mother-in-law, if you remember that story, that will give you what the plot structure is. Um, now, I said that you'll find the, the heart of the matter, usually in the resolution, that is the case. There are, however, and we'll see this a little later, there are occasionally narratives which do not provide us with an explicit resolution. But more of that later. Now let's apply this principle of a five-fold plot structure to a more complex, longer narrative. We'll take a look at the story of uh, David and Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11. See this working on a larger scale. So we go to um, 2 Samuel 11, the initial situation. You remember what the initial situation is? Introduces the characters, for example. So in verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's the initial situation. We've got a picture of it. The army's out. David's in Jerusalem. But something needs to happen in order for the narrative to move on. So then, we come to the complication. The complication, the trigger point, which is going to launch this narrative forward. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is a complication. Let me repeat, this is a complication. Now, what kind of response is David going to make how, what kind of strategy will he have in place to deal with this complication? All right? So that brings us then to the transforming action, the means, or at least the potential means, of managing or responding to that complication. So here in condensed form is what happens. 
So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. But Uriah did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting so that he may be struck down and die. That is David's plan for dealing with the complication. Fourth step, the resolution. This uh, resolves the issue created by the complication. Uh, you notice that in this story, the resolution is relatively long, verses 16 to 25. There are good reasons for that. I uh, will mention. So, as Joab was besieging the city, some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. The messenger said to David, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one, now another. There's a resolution. David receives word that Uriah is dead. And you see, it concerns him not one little bit. Do not let this matter trouble you. Because David's not going to let this matter trouble him. Because the matter is now resolved. Thank you very much. Uriah is dead. And then the final situation brings the narrative to a resting place. A brief statement at the end. When the, wife of, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now here in this final situation, you see that the story comes to a rest, that Uriah goes, uh, sorry, that um, Bathsheba goes to David's palace, she bears him a son, but that final sentence suggests that this final situation might not be entirely final. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So there we have uh, the fivefold disquinery plot structure. Initial situation, complication, transforming action, resolution, and final situation. Now, of course, we're dealing here with literature. We're dealing with a narrative. So we shouldn't think of the division between these five steps as being absolutely rigid. Uh, one can flow into the other. So sometimes different people looking at the same story may have... Um, you know, draw the line between one section and the other in a slightly different place. That's all right. But we're looking at the general flow, the movement of the plot will go through those stages. However, it's also good to remember that not all plots have all five steps. But generally speaking, it's thought that there are three elements which are critical in any plot. Three elements that you basically have to have. First, 
an initial situation, which is common sense, really, because unless you have an initial situation, you can't get anywhere. An initial situation. Secondly, a complication. Because without a complication, nothing's going to move. And thirdly, a resolution. Initial situation, complication, resolution. Those are, in almost every case, essential elements. Sometimes you get a transforming action. Sometimes you get a final situation. But sometimes the final situation and the resolution are sort of bound up together. But anyway, those three elements are, of the five are basically essential. But of course, as you would imagine, different narrators ring the changes on that basic pattern. So when you come to a narrative, you'll discover that these uh, steps in the plot structure are manipulated sometimes, uh, changed around to uh, often raise more tension and anticipation. So let's give an example of that in uh, Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham is standing before the Lord. The Lord is off to uh, um, see whether the sin of the cities of the plain is as uh, great as he has been led to believe. So the initial situation. Then the men set out from there and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Complication. The Lord said, now remember the Lord said to whom? Well, the Lord said to himself, the inner thoughts of the Lord, okay? Significant point. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Transforming action. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Resolution. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city... I will forgive the whole place for their sake. So we say to ourselves, there we have it then. There's the resolution. However, we then get a second transforming action. And Abraham said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And we get the second resolution, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And of course, we then get a third transforming action. Again, he spoke to him, suppose 40 are found there. Third resolution. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
There's a fourth transforming action. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Fourth resolution, he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. You see, the, uh, Abraham's in a kind of an auction with God in reverse direction, okay? The price is coming down. Fifth transforming action. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. The fifth resolution. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. The sixth resolution, he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. You see what's happening? Building up the tension. So how many is it going to be then? Is Abram going to get to zero? Just, just forget about it, Lord. Are we going to get that far? Well, we don't get that far because it says the Lord went his way. He's not hanging around anymore. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So there's an example of where you've got the basic structure but you have a variation on the theme and the basis, the reason for that um, variation is to delay and delay and delay the resolution because that's what we're looking for, right? The resolution is the heart of the matter and by delaying it, it becomes all the more precious once we get there. So, um, so don't again think of these, this plot structure as being absolutely rigid, just go one, two, three, four, five, no, variations on a theme. Um, we looked uh, at this a um, little earlier on. Remember when looking at the story of uh, Samson, uh, the delay in the story of Samson, the three and four. Uh, Samson uh, uh, puts uh, off Delilah once, twice, three times, and the fourth time we get to the resolution. The story of uh, Elijah on Mount Hebron, uh, the Lord was not in the wind, the Lord was not in the fire, the Lord was not in the earthquake, one, two, three, but he's present in the still small voice. That's a way of delaying the most significant point. Another variation on this is when we have an interrupted story, what's called an interrupted story. And here, this is when we don't get an explicit resolution. But we don't get an explicit resolution, not because the narrator has forgotten it, but because it serves a very important purpose in the narrative. A classic example is the story in Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. The background to this story, remember, is that Jonah has preached, the city has been spared, Jonah is mad, God chastises him, and then he asks this at the end. He says to Jonah, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And you notice that uh, the, the, the book ends there, and it ends with a question. And a question demands an answer. And the answer to the question would provide the resolution to the story. 
Now, how does Jonah answer this question? Well, he doesn't. Jonah never answers it because it's the final verse of the book. So this question is a question directed not just to Jonah, but to us as readers. How are you going to complete this narrative? What is your resolution to this complicated story? So here, the full resolution is missing, not because it's just dropped off or it's an oversight, but because the narrator is withholding the resolution because the narrator wants us to answer that question. Uh, God asks, shouldn't I have compassion for Nineveh? That's the question we need to answer. Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I have compassion for Nineveh? Uh, another example of an interrupted story comes in uh, Matthew, when Jesus tells the story, uh, uh, the parable in, in, in Matthew 20, Let's just, uh, we'll just read through this quickly. Uh, we don't need to comment too much on it, but see how this ends. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. And when those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the day, usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've been who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, this narrative also essentially lacks a resolution because you notice that the, the landowner asks a question. There's been a dialogue backwards and forwards, an objection, an answer, an objection, an answer, an objection, a question. How are those protesting going to answer this question? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And those protesting workers answer, well, they don't. Were they convinced? 
or were they not convinced? But what about you, dear reader? Are you convinced? How would you answer this question? Now, as preachers, maybe we've been, uh, our habit has been to think of ourselves as people who provide answers. The Bible doesn't always take that role upon itself. Therefore, maybe we shouldn't either in every case. An essential part, for example, of the book of Jonah is to leave the story open-ended so that people will answer for themselves, just as this parable leaves it open-ended, asking that people answer it for themselves. So in, in preaching, what I would suggest is don't provide, always provide the right answer so that the person in the pew passively gets the right point. But allow the sermon to be as challenging as the narrative. The narrative is challenging people to answer this for themselves. Therefore, it may be a good thing if the sermon replicates that um, aim of the narrative. Leave it challenging as a pregnant question. Then, oh, one other thing on that also, of course, if we do that, uh, then it opens the way to discussion and feedback after the sermon. And by, by feedback, I mean more than when we shake hands with the saints at the church door and they say, appreciated your words this week, Pastor. More than that is a response to the sermon itself so that the sermon is more than just a monologue. You see, these narratives are not monologues. They're inviting us in. How do you react? What's your answer? Um, so biblical narratives do have a message. If they didn't, they wouldn't have been written. Biblical narratives are a means of teaching, but they do it indirectly, inductively, and imaginatively. And if we can replicate that in our preaching, you know, when somebody can, I mentioned earlier today that you hear the parable of the prodigal son once, it's with you for the rest of your life. If somebody comes up to you and says, Pastor, I remember that sermon you preached 13 years ago, the one when you said this, that, and the other, then we know that we've, uh, we've succeeded because a sermon that is not remembered beyond Sabbath lunchtime, it's an awful lot of effort has been put in for minimal return. Let's have a look now uh, at another aspect of plot, and that is um, how plots, excuse me, do I need to, So we'll look now at narrative context. And what I mean by narrative context is this, that we have narratives which are made up of individual episodes, 
But in many biblical books, we have a number of episodes, one after another. And keeping our eye on the plot structure can help us see where we are. Um, so with each individual biblical narrative being part of a larger narrative block, it's helpful to see where this micro-narrative, this individual episode, fits into the macro-narrative, the larger and broader picture. So, for example, um, in looking at narrative context, imagine that you've just read through an individual episode. It's got a classic five-point plot structure. We go through initial situation, complication, transforming action, resolution, final situation. And then we have the next episode. The next episode will pick up with an initial situation, a complication, a transforming action, a resolution, and a final situation. And what will happen frequently is that the final situation of the first episode will provide us with the initial situation of the next episode so that these episodes are dovetailed into one another which indicates that these narratives are supposed to be dealt with holistically so that we don't preach on that ripping narrative you know in Genesis one week and the next week oh there's the story of Ruth that's fantastic and then the week after the story of the prodigal son Helpful if we show folk how extended narratives in the Bible interlock and how episode A opens the way and anticipates for episode B and episode C as we, as we move through. Now, the significance of a micro-narrative, an individual episode, and its relationship to the macro-narrative, I think can, we can see if we, if we look um, at this. Um, here's an illustration of what I mean. So the, the final situation uh, at the end of Genesis, uh, in Genesis 12:20, the final situation there is that Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. That's the final situation of that narrative. Next narrative begins with its initial situation. Next verse. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the negative. So the final situation of the first one gave orders, sent him on his way with his wife and all that he had. The initial situation of the next episode, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife. The initial situation of the next episode more or less repeats the final situation of the previous episode. Then there's one more aspect to bear in mind when we're looking at uh, plot in general, and that is 
the difference between a first-time reading and a second-time reading of a narrative. One of the problems in reading biblical stories is that we already know most of them. We already know how the story is going to work out. So when we get to the resolution, we're not surprised. You know, we say to ourselves, well, I, yeah, I knew that. Um, but there are two ways of reading the plot of a narrative. The first way is what I'd call a first-time reading, which is, as far as possible, read this story as if, as if you've never read it before. You don't know the resolution. You don't know how it's going to work out. So you've got to be imaginative. You've got to be very disciplined. But you've got to read it as if you've never read it before. When you do that, you'll be surprised by elements which you previously just assumed. When you do that, when you don't know the resolution, or you're reading as if you don't know the resolution, your interest is maintained to the very end because you don't know what's coming next. That's a first-time reading. It's a great discipline. If you can discipline yourself to read a story as if you've never heard it before, you'll find things coming out of that text that you've never seen. Then the uh, alternative way, the next way of reading the narrative, would be what, well, a second time reading. And the second time reading, read it already knowing the resolution, because you've already read the story for the first time. Now you're reading it for the second time, you already know what the resolution is, so the resolution is not a surprise. But it raises other possibilities, reading for the second time. So let me illustrate this. First of all, reading for the first time, as if for the first time. If we look at the story in Genesis 22, first of all, let's look at the first two verses. Now we're reading this as if for the first time. We don't know what the resolution's going to be. We don't know how this story's going to work out. We're reading it as if that is the case, right? So when we start reading, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now it's commonly stated that at the beginning of this, where it says God tested Abraham, it's commonly stated, oh, well, there you are, you see, it's only a test. So there's, there's no tension, there's no problem here, it's just a test. But that is not reading as if for the first time. Because what if the test is to see whether Abraham actually will kill Isaac? If we're reading as if for the first time, the fact that it's a test doesn't mean that Isaac will be rescued. It just means that could well be the test, whether Abraham will go through with it. So 
that keeps the, the tension alive, say that. Then the second approach to this narrative is to read as a second time reader. So we've read through, we've got to the resolution, we know that Isaac is rescued. We know that um, Isaac, is, Isaac survives. Now, when we come, say, to verse 5, um, notice the difference it, uh, there is between reading this verse as if for the first time and then reading it for a second time. Then Abram said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, if we are reading as if for the first time, what do we make of these words? What has God told Abram to do? He's told Abram to take his son to Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. So when Abram says, I and the boy will come back to you, well, is he telling lies? because that shouldn't happen if we don't know how the story works out. So reading for the first time, we say, that's an odd thing to say. Might need to keep our eye on that. But then when we read it for the second time, knowing that Isaac was rescued, well, it means something rather different, doesn't it? Does Abraham have some kind of insight here as to what will happen? So reading a story as if for the first time and then reading it for the second time can produce a substantially different understanding. And that is something worth exploring homiletically in a sermon. If you can take, we can say to our congregation, let's try to go through this story as if we've never heard it before. Now, of course, for many in your congregation, that might well be true but for many it won't. But going through it two ways, not knowing the result and then knowing the result means the story can come alive again. Now, what I would uh, like us to do now, I'd like you to do an exercise, um, which is to look at a short narrative from... Um, Mark chapter 12, and what I'd like you to do is to analyze the plot structure. We have five steps in a plot structure. Initial situation, complication, transforming action, resolution, final situation. So let's look at how that um, text of uh, Mark 12, uh, 13 to 17, how it uh, conforms to a five-fold plot. Um, those are the, that's the plot structure, initial situation, complication, transforming action, resolution, final situation. So the initial situation, then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. That's an initial situation. The complication, 
They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, you show deference. You see, it goes on, paying him compliments, you know something, they have something up their sleeve. Then, the critical question, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? There's a complication here, and it's concerning paying taxes to Caesar or not. The transforming action, Jesus said, bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. The resolution then, Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And the final situation, and they were utterly amazed at him. So in this narrative then, the resolution is Christ's statement to render to the emperor or to render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That is the heart of the matter. It's the heart of the matter because it's the resolution of the narrative. So a sermon on this passage will not do justice unless it deals as its primary focus with those words of Jesus, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So a knowledge of the plot structure of a narrative can point us in the direction of finding the heart of the matter and thus the focus for our preaching.